Hello and welcome to this first bonus episode attached to our new chapter for the podcast. Having dedicated the bonus episodes of our previous journey to various contributors in the history of Hamlet, I thought it might be fun to discuss different productions of Macbeth as we make our way through the Scottish play. The opening scene is one of the shortest in Shakespeare, and so here we are already in need of a bonus episode. You probably won't be surprised that my first choice of a key production is Ninagawa Macbeth. This year, it's 35 years since the brilliant Thelma Holt curated an international season at the National Theatre and brought, among other global artworks, Ninagawa's productions of both Macbeth and Medea to London. His work had certainly toured before this to a variety of places, but this alliance between Ninagawa and Thelma-san was magic and began three decades of shared productions and theatrical triumphs between Tokyo and London. If Thelma Holt hadn't lobbied to bring this double bill to London audiences, who knows if we would have seen much more of Ninagawa. Her influence is extraordinary, and without this incredible contribution to global Shakespeare and theatre in general, I personally would have had a very different life. It feels very timely to make an episode about Ninagawa Macbeth this weekend. It will go live online on August the 14th, which is the date on which the historical King Duncan died in 1040 AD. It's also the week of Obon, the Japanese festival that honours the spirits of one's ancestors. Obon is a time for ghost stories and family observances, usually focused on the Buddhist family altar, the Butsudan. With these two dates squaring each other on the calendar, it seems only fitting to talk a little about Ninagawa Macbeth. By the end of the 1970s, Ninagawa had had substantial successes with his commercial but still avant-garde productions of a wide range of plays including Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet and Medea. He incorporated Elton John music and modern costumes, horrifying purists, and his Medea was one of the most extraordinary productions perhaps of all time. If I start talking about it, I might not stop. 1979 then saw the premiere of his most successful show ever, a live-action adaptation of popular stories from the Bunraku Puppet Theatre called Suicide for Love. Ninagawa followed this with a production of Macbeth, and this would become something of a signature show for him. Ninagawa's producer, Nakane Tadao, suggested setting the play in a particular castle associated with a famous Japanese warlord, in the hope that the historical parallel might help Japanese audiences to understand the turmoil of Shakespeare's play. Ninagawa didn't quite agree, and one evening, while praying at his family altar, he struck upon the idea of making the play a dialogue with the dead. As a result, the set design became a giant, oversized butsudan, or family altar. At the beginning of the performance, two elderly Japanese women entered and opened its sliding panels, paying their respects. Throughout the performance, they sat on either side of the stage, observing the action as it played out. And at the end, their observance completed, they closed the doors again over the last lines of the play. In this way, Ninagawa framed the play in a way that Japanese audiences could immediately recognise. He dressed the performers in costumes from a very specific, bloody period of history that itself was immediately followed by a time of comparative peace. Of course, 
any Japanese production that seeks to relocate Macbeth to a period of Japanese military history will have to expect comparisons with Kurosawa Akira's film Throne of Blood, itself one of the great adaptations of this play. But by the time he created it, Ninagawa had become something of a star in his own right, and his production, perhaps immodestly, called itself Ninagawa Macbeth although it acknowledged the intercultural traffic of ideas by writing the director's name in English script and the play's title in Japanese. This production drew on successful approaches that Ninagawa had developed for Hamlet, Medea and Suicide for Love, and the result was a remarkable blending of Japanese imagery and Shakespearean drama. For the witches, so central to any serious approach to this play, he emulated Shakespearean tradition by casting three men in the roles, but he also borrowed from Japan's kabuki theatre to heighten their theatricality and make them both fascinating and horrifying. The witch's femininity and speech were clearly artificial, but Macbeth, and we in the audience, never got a sense of what horrors might be lying underneath. Drawing on such a specific set of performance codes, and then subverting them, created a remarkably weird set of sisters, quite brilliantly Japanese and experimental. The most famous Japanese element of this production, however, was the abundance of cherry blossoms throughout. Indeed, in some circles the production has the nickname of being the Cherry Blossom Macbeth. Whenever the witches appeared, cherry blossoms rained down. Cherry blossoms appeared on kimono and on folding screens and various other pieces of art throughout the show. An enormous, seemingly real tree appeared on stage and Banquo was murdered under it. And then, in an incredibly beautiful move, Ninagawa had Burnham Wood become a forest of moving cherry trees when Malcolm and Macduff's army moved on Macbeth's castle. The cherry blossom is a particularly evocative emblem in Japanese culture. It is associated with a uniquely Japanese emotion called mono no aware, the pity of things, a kind of melancholy for the evanescence of life and the passage of time. It's very much used to evoke the sadness of soldiers dying young or in battle, and so there's a strong military association with it, ironic perhaps given the delicacy of the blossom's shape and colour. All of this was woven into Ninagawa's very specific and calibrated use of cherry blossom imagery throughout this play. The impermanence of the cherry blossom was a perfect metaphor for Macbeth's rise to power, the falling petals insisting subtly but unmistakably that his reign could not last, and bear in mind that the costumes were also suggesting that after his reign there might be a time of peace. The cherry blossoms also evoke a short poem by the warrior monk Saigyo, which says, I hope I can die under the spring blossoms, in the light of a full moon in the second month. Ninagawa staged the final duel between Macbeth and Macduff in front of a huge red full moon, and when Macbeth struck the crucial blow, all music stopped and the moon snapped from red to blue light. Macbeth was granted something like the heroic death that Saigyo had been wishing for, and in several performances in Japan, his death was met with a round of applause. Ninagawa wrote in his notes that his entire concept and approach for this Macbeth were designed for the reality of Macbeth's late soliloquy in Act 5, Scene 5. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. Here, 
Macbeth is alone, surrounded by flickering candles, as Ninagawa wrote, just like the candles at Nenbutsu Temple. Nenbutsu is a Buddhist temple in Kyoto, famous for its enormous number of statues. These are all dedicated to those who died without family, and during Obon, the festival of the dead, the entire precinct is filled with candles. While its specific inspiration may not have reached many audiences, the image was a beautiful one. Setting the play within the Butsudan, suffused with cherry blossoms, and costuming it to evoke a remote historical period, all but insist on the understanding that everyone in the play is already dead. This scene emphasises that Macbeth will die alone. At the beginning he learns that his wife has just died, and as Macduff already proclaimed, he has no children. This setting makes the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech exceptionally powerful. The notes suggest that Macbeth can light the candles as if trying to use the activity to conquer his fears, and then lie down among them, the dead. Macbeth's realisation of his own mortality, that all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death, was brilliantly conveyed. At the very end, he curled up in a fetal position, all of the hints and images pointing to this eventual lonely death. Watching a video of the production again this weekend, at the time of Obon, I was struck again by the intensity and intelligence of this show, and how amazingly meaningful Ninagawa made the play for his Japanese audiences. There were even more complicated and specific references, some very visible, others only implied throughout the show. They range from Buddhist temple guardians in the England scene to an acknowledgement of the controversial Japanese Red Army incident in the 1970s, not to mention the blurring of Foray, Brahms and Buddhist chanting in the sound design. But for such extras, I must refer you, just for once, to my book about Ninagawa, which covers this and his entire career with Shakespeare in considerably more detail than I can fit in here. Ninagawa Macbeth was revived by the director himself very soon before his death in 2016, and it was brought to London's Barbican Theatre the following year. At the end of the production, a photograph of Ninagawa himself was flown in, and the entire company bowed to him in respect. Now that Ninagawa was among the deceased ancestors that had inspired this show, this final step, including his photo within this oversized family altar, was particularly moving. Few productions ever manage to unite artistic success, cultural significance, international attention and meaningful interpretation to the extent that this production achieved. Ninagawa himself joked that he spent 35 years trying to achieve it again, and that that was why he decided to tackle the production again before he died, to see if he still had it. Of course he did. I don't know if there's another production of Macbeth out there that has intrigued and inspired me quite as much as this one, but there are 27 more scenes in the play and therefore, perhaps, 27 more bonus episodes coming your way. If you have a particular favourite you'd like to nominate or recommend, I'd love to hear from you. As ever, you can reach me via the website, thehamletpodcast.com, or on social media, at hamletpodcast. From here on out, the regular podcast episodes will be coming to you every Sunday, and I hope you'll consider subscribing or liking or even submitting a review. The more of such things that we can generate, the more the podcast seems to reach new people. And of course, with your help, I'd love to reach as many people as we can. 
Thank you, as always, for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.